conference organizers for what has been one of the most intellectual experiences I've had in a long time, so thanks to all of our speakers so far. Um, and I now have the task of keeping you all awake after lunch. So, <laughs> so since the proclamation of the famous religio-political alliance between Mohammed bin Saudis Amir and Mohammed bin Abdul Wahab as imam of the first Saudi state in 1744, the religious interpretation popularly known as Wahhabism has played a central legitimating role for the Saudi government and called upon Saudi subject citizens to be obedient to that government as a religious duty. Indeed, religion plays a role in the daily affairs of the state and the lives of subject citizens, most importantly serving as an inclusive source of identity and belonging for those adherents who will have teachings and as a mechanism of exclusion for those who do not. The dawn of the 21st century and the Arab uprisings since 2011 have brought issues of identity and belonging, or not, to the forefront as Saudi Arabia has been faced with the dual challenge of, on the one hand, allowing citizens to grow into fuller participation in decision-making processes, and shaping the Saudi nation at both the national and grassroots levels, and then on the other, maintaining national security in the face of perceived foreign interventions inside the kingdom, namely by Iran, as the Saudi Shia population is suspected and accused of being used by Iran as a fifth column in various proxy wars. Ultimately at stake is the question of whether Saudi Shia can ever fit into the uh, framework of Saudi citizenship. Can they be considered trustworthy, reliable, full citizens and agents capable of helping to fulfill the twin missions of Wasatiya and Wasaniya, or must they forever be relegated to second-class status with both subjects and objects of policies and suspicions as the enemy within, particularly as understanding of what it means to be a citizen and who has the right to interpret and implement religious teachings and practices seems to be changing. Historically, we have seen the relationship between religion and the state swing back and forth almost like a pendulum. Sometimes the state takes the lead role in decision making and seeks support of the religious establishment. At other times, the ulama take the upper hand and the state is left in the supportive role trying to maintain legitimacy. And so what I would like to address today is the construction and reconstruction of ideas and identities of Saudi citizenship today through analysis of the government-sponsored program of Wasatiya, known as moderation and its limits, and accompanying changes to perceptions of what Wasatiya, or love of country, in the form of citizenship is, as well as how these concepts are or are not applied in the case of Saudi Shia, based on government perceptions of Shia that fluctuate between seeing them as partners and agents in the national project and dangerous political enemies in need of containment. Uh, so both subjects and objects of policies and securities. Since 9-11, Wasatiya has been projected as the national program for reform. And government officials from the king on down frequently assert Wasatiya as the driving vision behind their work and talk about Islam as a Wasatiya religion. And this rhetoric has been backed by the official religious establishment. It is defined by the government as a middle-of-the-road interpretation of Islam geared toward community building, ethics, and harmony. And because the government is the main component of this vision in action, the government therefore holds the upper hand in determining what constitutes correct religious interpretation, connecting Wasatiya with Wataniya. A moderate religious identity is supposed to be a central aspect of citizenship today, capable of overriding other existing identities that have tended to segment society. Yet although Wasatiya is intended to promote the creation of citizens who are moderate in their views, it is not a program for democratization. 
The driving force behind the perceived need for Watsania, or, I'm sorry, for Wasatia has been the state's confrontation with extremism, defined as the use of violence to achieve political goals, even when dressed in religious clothing. Because the government claims the exclusive right to the use of violence, the reality of Wasatia is that it is intended to bolster the state's exclusive right to both the use of violence and political decision making. At its heart, therefore, Wasatia is promoted by the government, is designed to maintain the government in its current position of power, precluding the potential for either civil war or revolution, the great fears on the one hand, but also for full democratization on the other. Any challenge to the government monopoly on violence or policy making is therefore viewed as a security threat that has to be faced with the proverbial iron fist. The goal of Wasatia is to maintain stability, and that has long been a pillar of Saudi domestic and foreign policy. Denunciation of extremism routinely occurs on television, publications, social networks, and in public venues, making that anti-extremist message as pervasive as the extremist message supposedly is. On those occasions when regional or domestic unrest appears to be ratcheting up, various government officials will give official speeches warning against extremism and violent activity as diseases that need to be disinfected, treated, and even surgically removed in order to prevent festering and infection. The rhetoric of misguided people deceiving others into fitna and sedition is routinely trotted out as a warning against the extremism of religious preachers who are outside of the religious establishment, who are not only supposedly trying to engage Saudi youth in jihads outside of Saudi Arabia, which does happen, but also oppose the Saudi government domestically, all of which threatens the kingdom's stability. And the problem with that approach is that it lumps all non-government religious scholars really into the same bag, extremists and more moderate voices alike. Even in cases where moderate voices are under attack by extremist elements, as we saw most recently in the assassination attempt against Dr. Ayn al-Kharni, it's designed to prevent agency in the interpretation of religion. Much of Wasatia is supposed to offer what Lisa Bedin has called performative practices, in which Wasatia is not just about government commands and theological theorizing, but is supposed to include its embodiment and expression in real life settings. The performance of Wasatia before many publics is supposed to change the social mentalities of the citizen audience. Yet we might note that a government might be able to command its people to be moderate in their thinking and religious practice, yet it is up to individuals to decide to internalize that and actually do it. And it is within that construct that challenges to this new Saudi identity have to be understood. We might take as an example, beginning in 2005, the government scholarship program, the largest scholarship program in Saudi history, encouraging Saudi college students, both female and male, Sunni and Shia alike, from all walks of life, to study abroad. And the purpose here was not just to acquire needed skills, but also to promote this national program of Wasatia at a social level by exposing them to the bigger world. The hope was that being exposed to other ideas and cultures would lead to greater open-mindedness and willingness to embrace difference based upon personal experience. It was intended to be a long-term investment in building the new Saudi citizen of the 21st century. That program uh, is in some jeopardy at this point because of all the budget cuts that have been introduced under the new regime. But perhaps the most complicated challenge with respect to Wasatia has been trying to formulate a viable religious approach that is faithful to Islam and respects Saudi heritage and culture, but also is capable of addressing 21st century needs. 
The promotion of a single government-sanctioned interpretation at a time when there are a multitude of voices competing for the same public, thanks to social media and global communications capacities, has proven to be increasingly difficult to manage, especially in the face of counter-arguments that real Wasatia would require a multiplicity of voices being involved in that process of interpretation. The Saudi government has made it very clear that extremism is not going to be permitted at any level of the official religious establishment and that anyone who supports or promotes extremist ideology is supposed to be dismissed. Yet this official government stance of opposition to Takfiri ideology as having no place stands in opposition to the concepts of al-amr al-ma'ruf al-munkar, which is supposed to keep subjects in their place, and al-bulaw al-barah, which makes objects of those who do not adhere to correct doctrine. And so we have, on the one hand, the government exerting greater control over religious voices at the same time that uh, government extremism and censorship seems to be robbing interpreters of any sense of agency. And this is the background against which we have to look at the challenge of Saudi Shia. It is perhaps here that the disconnect between rhetoric and performative practice has been most apparent in state interactions. Saudi Shia are variously portrayed as Iranian agents, terrorists within, apostates, political dissidents, partners in national dialogue, targets and objects of development projects, and aspiring students and Citizens, and this would seem to be a very complicated mix of being viewed as subjects, objects, and agents that, for obvious reasons, leaves them wondering exactly who and what they are supposed to be. What it suggests is that the perceived status and role of Saudi Shia at any given point in time has to be contextualized in terms of national priorities, domestic and international political concerns, and fluctuations in the economy. In other words, the identity of Saudi Shia is neither constant nor a matter of self-perception, but is one that is projected by the government and the rest of the country onto them and is context-dependent. It should also be noted that the idea of Shia identity being both the primary and terminal identities of Saudi Shia denies the possibility of any other form of identity ever coming to the forefront or any capacity for agency and expression of identity, a position that I would argue is untenable in current circumstances in which a Shia may choose to identify more as a member of the youth population or by gender than by Shia per se. One of the greatest challenges to full acceptance of the Shia has been this consistent opposition to Shia religious beliefs and practices by Wahhabi ulama, who uh, have a very negative view of the Shia and refer to them as Rafida and assert that many of their religious practices reflect shirk. Because the government has tolerated and in some cases uh, even supported anti-Shia fatwas, polemics, and books, including in the state-owned media, Shia are left wondering where their place is. They have further been marginalized from the master state meta-narrative of Saudi history, in part due to an apparent state desire to marginalize their presence and contributions to make it appear that they have neither been present historically uh, nor participants in the project of nation-building from the beginning. And because this social terrain has already, is already in place, we're considering them as the enemy within. Anti-Shia rhetoric and suspicion tends to flare up during times of crisis, especially if claims of Iranian intervention are involved. To give you an example, uh, 1993, um, there were concerns about general amnesty being offered to Saudi Shia in exile. And it is therefore probably no coincidence that this same time period saw the publication of one of the most notoriously anti-Shia works, the situation of the rejectionists in the lands of monotheism by wonderful ultra-conservative Sheikh Nasser al-Ummar. 
in which he accused the Shia of being infidels and a danger to the nation. It is true that the basic law of Saudi Arabia prohibits sectarian uh, discrimination. I won't go through all of uh, the details for that. You can ask me about them afterwards. Um, but what we see is that although there are certain laws and decrees that would essentially uh, outlaw any sort of uh, creation of disunity between citizens or harm of the country in the process, there has yet to be passed any legislation that specifically criminalizes incitement of hatred, despite discussions within the Madras of Shura as recently as May 2015. Instead, every incident is addressed separately and punished uh, according to the whim of the ruler. And so even though we have these moments of hope uh, that look as though greater inclusion of Shia might uh, take place, such as in the case of the national dialogues, um, even those dialogues uh, are subject to uh, contemporary develop developments and events that can take them quickly off track. If we look at the impact of the Arab uprisings of 2011, what we find is that the process or the hoped-for process of greater inclusion was very much derailed by fears of a spillover from Bahrain and accusations of Iranian intervention in encouraging ongoing demonstrations, particularly in Al-Amiya. One of the major largely unexplored stories of the Saudi Shia uprising has been the shift in Shia youth confidence in leadership in general, whether we're talking about the government or traditional clerics, as decades of opposition movements, whether we're talking about leftist ideologies, Khomeinism, or what have you, um, have failed fundamentally to alter the inferior status of the Shia and give them a greater voice in decision making, or even to commandeer a significantly larger share in oil revenues as investment in Shia majority areas. And although initially, in the early days of the uprisings, it looked as though the government would be responsive to Shia protesters' demands <coughs> in the same way that the government had given positive responses to other demonstrations, largely by Sunni youth, um, such as uh, on university campuses where substandard living conditions uh, were being protested. In these cases, they were met with high-level meetings with officials, sacking of certain individuals, and uh, meeting of some of the points of demand. However, this did not uh, happen uh, in the case of uh, Saudi Shia. That willingness to engage in dialogue is not necessarily the same thing as taking proactive measures. Despite the connection between national unity and dialogue on the one hand, and the elimination of sectarian tension and hatred by promoting stability and religious tolerance on the other, what we have seen is a resurgence of anti-Shia rhetoric across the board that such a sectarian diatribe would have found a receptive audience after so many years of working to try to, at least officially, improve the Shia image uh, was frustrating for many people, although it's probably not very surprising given how pervasive anti-Shia incitement in the Saudi educational system and media is. But what became more frustrating in this case was that this anti-Shia rhetoric was not limited to members of the public expressing individual views, um, but really became very pervasive in government circles and the official Saudi media. And the situation in Saudi Arabia has become so extreme that any kind of protest or demonstration in the eastern province is immediately labeled as a security threat, uh, even though the initial protests themselves were not violent, and the only force that was used was actually by the Saudi government. Uh, perhaps our poster child for this would be Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr, who was the only one of the Shia uh, leaders who did not demand that the students end their protests immediately. Uh, we all know that uh, Nimr al-Nimr's uh, history, unfortunately, ends uh, very sadly with his execution 
by the Saudi state uh, in January of this year. And that was done deliberately alongside uh, people who were accused of being members of Al-Qaeda, so to show that uh, this was not really an anti-Shia act per se, but really was a reaction against any form of rebellion uh, against the Saudi state. Saudi Shia have been particularly outraged by the arrest, detention, and even injury of Shia children at the hands of Saudi security forces, one of whom uh, is the nephew of Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr, uh, who was 17 years old uh, at the time of his arrest and who remains uh, in prison, to my understanding, and uh, subject to uh, the death penalty. Um, and there has been an attempt by uh, human rights activists and uh, Shia activists as well uh, to make the argument that these children, first of all, are under the age of 18 and should be protected by international treaties and agreements that the government of Saudi Arabia uh, has signed. Um, they should not be uh, treated as adults or held uh, for such long periods of time. Um, but further to say that the crimes that they've been charged with are things like burning car tires on public roads, participating in social networks, having pictures of religious leaders on their mobile phones, and expressing support online for peaceful gatherings, things that we would not be terribly concerned about um, in this country. Ultimately, the point is not one of these children posed a genuine threat or danger to anyone, whether security forces or civilians, yet violence was used against them in arresting them, and some of those who have been released have been banned from travel. What the Shia hope to raise attention to is that International treaties signed by the kingdom are supposed to guarantee the rights of children to freedom of expression, conscience, and peaceful gathering. And it would be schizophrenic for a government to give these sorts of rights to children while denying them to adults. Furthermore, if you provide these rights to children up until the age of 18, uh, it would be rather absurd to expect them to just be able to set them aside because it's their 18th birthday and now they will live in a higher state of obedience to the government. As we look to the future, um, we've certainly seen a slowdown in uh, Shia protests since 2014, and it is perhaps the creation of that breathing space that allowed for an, a sympathetic response to attacks uh, supposedly by ISIS uh, against Shia mosques during Friday prayers that began in May of 2015. Uh, initially, there was a very hopeful mood um, as Sunnis and Shias gathered together uh, to participate uh, in funerals. Um, but at the same time, the Saudi government, in as much as it expressed its sorrow and sympathy to Shia citizens for these attacks, really doesn't seem to have done very much effectively to prevent them from recurring again. And so it has been left to the Shia to try to figure out how to uh, protect themselves, setting up their own protection committees with both male and female uh, security services, which has now fueled accusations that you know, the Shia are arming themselves and they're coming uh, to get us sort of thing. That citizens would take matters into their own hands is not unique uh, to the Shia. I think the real turning point in Saudi Arabia came in 2009 and 2011 uh, with the floods that hit Jeddah and uh, killed hundreds of people and caused massive destruction. And for citizens who were raised on government handouts and what I would call a manufactured sense of helplessness from being on the outside, uh, they were really placed in a position where they had to act to save themselves because all of the security services were providing services to the pilgrims who were there for Hajj um, and were not physically present uh, in order to address needs in Jeddah. And so it was left to citizens to organize themselves, to figure out who was capable of driving. At that point, it didn't matter how old you were, what nationality you were, whether you were male or female. If you knew how to drive a vehicle and could be of use, you did so. Um, 
people work to uh, organize medical supplies, food, water, um, etc. And in the aftermath of those floods, as the government failed to even repair the roads properly, there were people who went out to the local home improvement stores, bought bags of cement, and started repairing roads for themselves. Now, on the one hand, one might say, well, this could you know, certainly cause unrest against the government. But I think the more important issue in the context of Saudi Arabia was that this became a moment of individual empowerment. Don't sit here waiting for the government to come and rescue you because they aren't coming. You need to get up and start doing something for yourselves. And once you flip that switch on, I think it will be very difficult um, to shut back off. So in conclusion, some of the lessons that have been learned uh, from the Arab uprisings, we see a greater willingness to engage in agency, particularly among uh, Shia youth, asking for the dignity, freedom, and rights that we have seen um, in other places. We have seen young people joining together, Sunni and Shia, uh, trying to address uh, the sectarian concerns and uh, hopefully uh, bring about a greater sense of connection uh, between themselves. I think the biggest questions for the future are whether the time has come for the Saudis to set aside this rhetoric of the enemy within as subjects and objects in order to move forward with a more genuine cohesion of the population of Saudis as citizen agents rather than uh, the divide and conquer that has ruled in the past. Uh, thank you.